If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, or your scripture journals, I want to invite you to open with me to Exodus in chapter 33. Exodus in chapter 33. If you're in a scripture journal, that'll be on page 158. 158. As we continue to near the end of our study through Exodus, which is kind of bums me out. Does it bum you guys out, sort of? We've been in Exodus for the better part of 18 months, and uh, it's been an incredible blessing to us. Let me briefly uh, say, mention, uh, there's several announcements we got. Um, but there's more than is prudent for me to share right now. So we have our trunk or treat that's coming up. We have our Thanksgiving baskets. Go to our Facebook page or Realm, and there's a short video that gives you all the information on that, okay? Also, this week, make sure you're on Facebook or, and Realm. Uh, we have an announcement about our plans to come back for Sunday school and Wednesday nights, okay? So uh, be on, look for that, okay? If you see a video of me, I know you hear from me too much, just watch it, okay, because we don't just put it out there for no reason, all right? It's got good info on there. So Thanksgiving back to the trunk or treat. Go back and watch that video this coming week. Be on Facebook for the video about Sunday school and midweek. But for today, oh, yeah, one more thing. Um, we're going to start Luke, as you've heard me mention, mid-November. If you want a scripture journal for that, we just ordered another box. We sold out. You guys are, are awesome. You sold out all the box that we had last week. We have another box coming, four bucks, scripture journal, put in the offering plate, put in the mailbox, come by the church, uh, grab as many of those as you want. All right, uh, Exodus 33, my rambling, hopefully, uh, gave you plenty of time to turn to this text. We're going to go ahead and just read the whole chapter, all right? Exodus 33, verses 1 through 23. Uh, it'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. So let's go ahead and read this together. God's Word says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart. Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Prezites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. <coughs> Excuse me. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on their ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know that what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Verse 7. <coughs> now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out of the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out of that tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of the cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship at each, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, 
Do not bring us up from out of here, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of a rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Amen. It's God's word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. In J.R.R. Tolkien's book, The Hobbit, we follow our hero Bilbo Baggins as he traverses many hardships. In large part, his success on this journey is due to the wisdom and guidance of the wizard. Does anybody know his name? Gandalf. Following one such hardship at Lonely Mountain, defeating a terrible dragon and being whisked and rescued away by the eagles thanks to Gandalf, they arrive at the Mirkwood Forest. There's a daunting task lying ahead of them as traveling through this forest is no easy task. Well, as they arrive on the edge of this forest, they receive probably the worst news they could get. Gandalf tells them he will not be accompanying them during the next part of their journey. And when Gandalf broke the news to Bilbo and the dwarves, this is what Tolkien writes. He says, the dwarves groaned and looked most distressed, and Bilbo wept. They had begun to think Gandalf was going to come all the way and would always be there to help them out of difficulties. They begged him not to leave them. They offered him dragon gold and silver and jewels, but he would not change his mind. Now, although The Hobbit is a work of fiction, you could probably imagine how Bilbo and company would feel upon losing Gandalf's companionship. If you were traveling through a dangerous, yes, an unknown place, surely you would want the presence and the wisdom of a guide who would be familiar, right, with the path to come. <coughs> losing such a person would be devastating loss. Well, Israel, anxious that Moses... Moses' prolonged absence on Sinai meant that they had no divine leadership to lead them the rest of the way fell into idolatry. They thought they would have to go into the Mirkwood Forest, as it were, alone, like Bilbo and his friends. So they fell back, as we've seen, to their Egyptian ways. They forsook the true God who promised his presence and guidance, and they had Aaron craft them a God they could both see and touch. They even proclaimed that it represented Yahweh, both rescuing them from Egypt and relying on it to protect them henceforth. You see the cruel irony of this, of Israel making the cow to represent God so that they could go into the promised land, is that those actions have now caused God to offer less of his presence than they had pre-Exodus 32. In other words, in trying to manufacture God's presence, they lost it, in some sense. Exodus 32, would you agree with me, is the darkest chapter of all of Exodus. Anything else fair to say? It is full of sin and idolatry, the consequences thereof. And while chapter 33 follows this with, at the beginning, some more bad news, the grace of God once again rescues Israel from the depths. So let's walk through this and see what God has for us. 
we open where we left off last week. Moses goes to the Lord in hopes of atoning for the people's sin, a request God denies, right? But now God says something surprising in the beginning of our text. He tells Moses to depart from Sinai and lead the people to the land that he swore to Israel's patriarchs. In other words, God still intends to keep his side of the covenant, to give the promised land to Israel, even as Israel has broken their part, which was clearly symbolized by Moses shattering the tablets. So you read verse 1, right? And this is good news, isn't it? Then verse 2 says that God will send the angel that he promised previously to lead Moses and the people, and the angel will do just what he said it would do in chapter 23. He will go and drive out a sizable portion of the pagans who currently occupy the land. So verse 2, more good news, yes? Verse 3 says, God says they will go to the land flowing with milk and honey, which means they'll go to the land that the angel will lead them, and this land is plentiful, has plentiful crops, fertile soil, <coughs> and their livestock will have plenty to eat and will provide even more good food. So this is all great news, isn't it? This is really good news. They get to go to the promised land. They get to be guided by a supernatural being sent by God. They get to have their enemies driven out from before them. They get to go to this paradise-type place flowing with milk and honey. In other words, they get everything they could ever want. They will get everything that they were hoping the golden calf would supply for them. This all sounds really good, doesn't it? Okay, but here's the bad news in the second half of verse 3. Says the Lord, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. This is devastating. It's hardly possible to overstate what this is communicating. Peter N. says it well. He says, The significance of this turn of events cannot be stressed too highly. The whole purpose of Exodus was for God and his people to be together. God's presence with them will be firmly established in the proposed tabernacle. By saying, go ahead, but you're going without me, the events of the previous 31 chapters are being undone. This is no mere setback. It means the end of the road. Friends, in this short statement that comprises half a verse in our English translation, God is saying that everything we have gone through in our journey in Exodus, indeed, the whole purpose of the rescue from Egypt was all for nothing. We, we have said, haven't we, during the entire time that we've been journeying through Exodus, that the point of Exodus was not simply so that a, a people group could be free from slavery, nor was it so that said people could be given a piece of real estate near the Mediterranean Sea. The purpose of all of Exodus, the purpose of everything we've seen in the first 31 chapters, was God securing for himself a people for his possession whom he would dwell with and who could bear his name and spread his rule throughout the earth. Now, says God, I will not be with you. It's like they were still booked for the promised land, but God had canceled his reservation. With one act of impatience, Israel ruined everything. But, says God, you wanted protection to go to the promised land? You wanted a land of milk and honey? You wanted a place you could call your own? You wanted your enemies vanquished? That's why you sinned against me a great sin and made the golden calf in violation of my commands? And guess what? You can have everything you want. But what? You won't have me. It's like... Israel is the prodigal son 
from the first half of the parable. Do you remember? Through their actions in chapter 32, they have, in essence, told God, we want our inheritance, we want what's coming to us, but we don't want you. We're interested in your stuff, not so much with you being in our presence. So give us material blessing, whether you're part of that is inconsequential. God has given them everything they want, but not himself. They have shown through their deeds in chapter 32 that what they really want is God's stuff, but they aren't so much concerned with whether God is with them at all. And so God says, this is what you want, then have it, but I will no longer be with you. I wonder, would you take that deal? You know, there's a question staring us right in the face, isn't it? The question of whether we would take the blessings of God without God himself. The question of what do we truly want? The question of what is the best and most important thing about salvation to us? Those loom large here. It reminds me of something John, pa- John Piper asked years ago. Listen to this. He's asked, if you could have heaven with all of your family and friends there, if you could be reunited with your loved ones, have all the food you loved and none of the pounds, see beautiful sunsets and have golf, beaches, mountains, fishing, or whatever you are into, but Jesus wasn't there, is it still heaven? Would you still want to go? Now, how would you answer that question in the deepest places of your heart? Or even in this life, would you take the material blessings of God divorced from having God himself. If you could have everything you ever wanted but without Jesus, would you take that deal? Or to put it another way, would you rather have health, wealth, prosperity, and no Jesus or have nothing of material value but you get Jesus? That's a frightening question, isn't it? I'm afraid of how most self-identifying Western Christians would answer that. Aren't you? Many would have little problem taking the gifts without the giver. Many would hear a deal that would give them the promise of blessing without a relationship that takes time and intentionality and actually costs and say, sign me up. I mean, there's a reason why the prosperity gospel is so popular, right? Like, because you get the promises of your heart's desire without all the buzz-killing talk of crosses and denial and dying to self. Or in what we might call the prosperity gospel 2.0, we're told that what God really is mainly interested in is us living out our full worldly potential. It's what Dean and Sarah calls the Instagramification of Christianity, where we're not only the center, but that's God's true desire for us, to live out greater, truer self-fulfillment. Now, don't hear me saying having stuff is inherently bad, but it also comes with the gigantic temptation to make them the objects of your joy rather than God. And the Bible's not shy about that temptation, is it? Because it's incredibly easy to slip into a place where we reject the hard things of the gospel and and the calls to obedience and death of self because we assume the gospel is inherently about us and the self-actualization of getting what we want in this life rather than living for the kingdom. The fact of the matter is, now hear me, okay? The main reason that the gospel is good, do you know why? 
is not because we receive things like grace and mercy or even heaven. The main reason the gospel is good is because we get Jesus. He's the true prize. He's everything. And a life full of stuff but without Christ is an empty life. The person who has everything they could ever want in terms of material possessions or fulfilling marriages and success in business but doesn't have Christ is truly poor and living in a hell on earth. But the person who has nothing in terms of material possessions but has Jesus, they're rich and living in paradise on earth. Do you believe that, I wonder? Do you? You guys know who Jeff Bezos is, right? He's in many ways the archetype of what the American dream is all about. Isn't that, is that fair to say? Now, he's a self-made man. Everybody knows his story, right? He started a business in his what? Garage, and now he's the richest man in the world. He's worth nearly $202 billion. And he's just starting space companies because he's, like, bored, Right? He's the envy of millions of people. We look at him and we think, if I just had a fraction of his wealth, all would be well. But if Jeff Bezos doesn't know Christ, he's incredibly poor. He is to be pitied. The Christian in China or South America or Iran or Kenya who struggles to find a meal from day to day is infinitely wealthier than Bezos and why? Because they have Jesus. And he's everything. Do you guys believe that? Because that's, that's, it sounds so counterintuitive to us because it's the exact opposite of what the world says and what false gospels say. And this is why so-called gospels that call for zero obedience or cost of following Jesus are so popular and attractive. But the main point of the gospel is that we can have Jesus now. And he can have us and he can empower us to live as we were created. He will make all things new, including giving us heaven. But heaven is good primarily because why? That's where Jesus is. Don't you see? Samuel Rutherford said, this is a money quote. He said, oh, my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without thee, it would be hell. And if I could be in hell and have thee still, it would be heaven to me, for thou art all the heaven I want. Friend, would you say the same thing? Because my goal here is not to make you feel bad for having things. My goal is, as always, for you to prize Jesus supremely. We should put everything else in its proper place. Because as Spurgeon said, you will never know the fullness of Christ until you see the emptiness of everything besides. We need to see that the gospel is good primarily because through it we receive Jesus and making him the center of our existence will aid us in how we view life and to not allow the idols of the world to tantalize us into thinking we can simultaneously worship a golden calf and worship Yahweh like the Israelites thought they could do. Jack Packer said, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set us, ourselves in this life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. What is the best thing in life, bringer, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. This we must understand and let sink into the depths of our hearts. 
So the question for Israel is this. With Yahweh offering Israel everything they could ever want but without him, would they take that deal? How would they receive the news? Because if we're reading the first part of chapter 32, it sounds like this is exactly what they wanted. But what do we see next? Verse 4. When the people heard this news, this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. That's the correct response. Israel receives news that they'll get everything they want, but not the Lord, and they receive this as a disastrous word, for that is what it is. I mean, you contrast 33.4 with 32.1, and we see a dramatic change take place with Israel, don't we? The promise of safety and abundance does not appeal to them anymore outside of the presence of the Lord in their midst. Before, they just wanted God's stuff. They didn't really want him. Now, they don't want the promised land if God isn't going to be among them. Like, it'd no longer be paradise for them if God was not there. Moses says as much in verse 15, which we'll see in a moment. He says, in your presence, if your presence isn't going to be with us, don't bother with the angel leading us. We don't want it. But Israel also puts their money where their mouth is in verses four, 5 and 6. What they do is they take off their ornaments and they don't wear them again. What does this all mean? He's not talking about Christmas trees, all right? Ornaments means jewelry, okay? This is more of the loot that we see them, that, that they got from Egypt before they left. They didn't use it all on the golden calf, okay? Um, and the significance of this is that the Egyptians used their jewelry for more than cosmetic reasons, okay? We might wear jewelry because we like how it looks or we believe it will enhance our look or just like it or whatever, right? But the Egyptians used their jewelry as amulets that would ward off evil spirits and would, and would ward off misfortune, and they believed it would help them negotiate the dangers of the underworld when they died. So God, in verses 3 and 5, is like, if I were in your midst... I would destroy you because you're a stiff-necked, stubborn people who will surely test me and I'll have to take you out, right? So it's best for me that I don't dwell, and for you, that I don't dwell in your midst lest you die. And he's like, I mean, look, you're still wearing, right, the amulets of Egypt, thinking that they're going to protect you. Take those off and we'll see what I will do. In other words, the taking off of the amulets is a physical sign of repentance, it's a physical sign of repentance. They're saying that they're willing to get rid of their paganism that literally clung to them. They're saying that they trust the care of God. Because while they wore that jewelry, they were still relying on their protection of pagan idols. But now with this little removal of these ornaments, they're showing that they want to move forward with God alone as their God. <coughs> if the Israelites... In Exodus 32, we're like the prodigal son of Luke 15 with their desire to have God stuff but not God. Now they're like the prodigal son as he comes to his senses in the pig pen and returns home. They are, through their taking off of these ornaments, saying, in essence, Father, we have sinned against heaven and against you. This is repentance. And repentance is necessary to have a right relationship with God. For Christians, we could say this, okay? Repentance is required for the initial step of salvation. 
and it's necessary for continued growth in Christ. Okay? Repentance is required for the initial step of salvation, and it's necessary to continue to grow in Christ. In fact, you know the very first words of Jesus in Mark's gospel, you know what they are? Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In Luke 13, Jesus says, I tell you, unless you repent, you will perish. The picture of Exodus 33, 4 and 6 is profound because Israel isn't merely sorrowful for the punishment of the latter half of the chapter. They are merely sorry that they sinned and committed idolatry or that it brought punishment. Israel is taking action from the heart as a matter of repentance because repentance requires a change of behavior, lest it isn't true repentance. And we see here what repentance does, which is that it provokes divine mercy. What is repentance, biblically speaking? Sam Storms, I think, has the best definition. This is repentance. True Christian repentance involves a heartfelt conviction of sin, a contrition over the offense to God, a turning away from the sinful way of life, and a turning towards a God-honoring way of life. That's what Israel is doing, and it must be what we do as well. The Christian life ought to be a posture of repentance because the more we grow in Christ, the more we will see the sin that remains in us and the less we will need to defend ourselves and those sins in pride because we find our justification in Christ and not our deeds or lack thereof. Repentance is a taking off of the sins that we see in our heart. It's a toppling of the idols like we talked about the last couple weeks. It's to deal honestly and humbly with those things that capture our hearts in a way that only Christ should. And taking the steps necessary to pluck them up and replace them with Jesus no matter how much it hurts or costs. We must not simply cover over our sins or defend them or do you do that i do that you do ever you do you defend your sin you lash out at somebody you know why you did that because they sin first right it's like we're kids on the freaking playground right they started it right that's not a good reason right we defend them we justify them we're little lawyers for our sins but true humility and security in christ says that we could confess and repent them if we don't replace the sin with christ though We aren't truly repenting. We're simply stopping for a time and picking it back up or just stopping it and replacing it with something equally as harmful to our souls. Let's illustrate it like this. Think of weeds in your yard. You guys got weeds in your yard? Of course you do. It's South Georgia. Let's say you have a flower bed that's full of weeds, okay? They inevitably grow and grow quickly. And you want to deal with them. You're like, I'm sick of these weeds. So you get your mower out and you mow over them, okay? And it looks good, right? Like, as far as you can tell, the weeds aren't there anymore. Every passerby will be none the wiser. What happens the next week, though? They're back, right? Looking healthier than ever. And so, you, you know, you do get your mower out. And you go, mower, mow over them again. That'll finally do the trick, right? No, of course not. Because the next week, they're just back mocking you and your puny mower, right? What, what will you have to do to get rid of the weeds forever. You gotta, you gotta get in there, right? Like you gotta do the difficult work. Like you gotta get down in the dirt. You gotta grab them by the root. You gotta yank them up, throw them in a garbage bag, and throw them in the trash can. Then you could plant something beautiful in its place, like some flowers. Oh, which is easier though? 
It's easier to mow, right, than to pluck. Mowing is easier, but it's also artificial and temporary. Plucking and planting is more difficult, but it's also more rewarding and long-lasting. The difficult work of Christian growth is getting in the dirt and recognizing the weeds and plucking them up and then replacing them with something beautiful, namely Christ. That's repentance. And that is why repentance isn't misery, but freedom and joy. But don't you see that repentance also means, and this is why I figure we don't do it often, that we got to shed the pretense. Right? We got to shed the egos. And we got to shed the desperate need to save face. Like, many won't confess and repent because they're afraid of what people will think. But can I, t- can I tell you a secret, right? Like, we put on these pretenses because we want people to think that we're, like, pious and primp and proper and have it all together. Everybody knows you're a mess. Okay? Do you know that? Like, no, you're not fooling anybody, right? This is why people are afraid to confess sin in church, right? And this should be the safest place on earth to do it. But freedom in Christ means we don't got to save face. Like, like, we don't need the pretense. We don't need the egos. In such instances, if we refuse to repent and confess sin, we see the Christless pull to justify ourselves and care more about what people think than what God thinks. But if we won't repent, we absolutely will not grow, which is why many people stay baby Christians their whole lives. Jonathan Lehman says this, repenting people typically are zealous about casting off their sin. That's what God's Spirit does inside them. When this happens, one can expect to see a willingness to accept outside counsel, a willingness to inconvenience their schedules, a willingness to confess embarrassing things, a willingness to make financial sacrifices or lose friends or end relationships. And similarly, Storm says, people don't repent because they are preeminently committed to saving face. They fear exposure because... They fear rejection, mockery, and exclusion. But listen to this. These are fearful realities only to those who do not yet sufficiently grasp that they are accepted, cherished, valued, and included in Christ. Friend, do you have an ornament, so to speak, in your life right now that you know deep down is sinful and is harming your growth in the Lord? Do you have one? I bet you do. Because I do. I want you to ask yourself, okay? Why am I clinging to this so strongly? Like, why am I playing lawyer and defending my sin? Like, who am I trying to curry favor with? Am I relying on my own deeds and reputation more than on Christ's work and power? Those are the hard questions we have to ask if we want to root up these sins. Do the work of shedding those things and replacing them with the beauty of the glorious Christ. He's enough to satisfy, yes? Yes? So next we're told that there was a tent that was set up outside the camp where Moses would go to meet the Lord. And the people could not go into this tent. Uh, Only Moses could. But they would stand at the entrance of their own tents and they would look and see when God would be meeting with Moses via the pillar of cloud. So since the tabernacle has not been built yet, it will be later in the book, this tent of meeting has been set up and it's not in the midst of the camp, but it's far outside it because the people are unclean. Now you read this chapter and 7 through 11 seems kind of like just matters of information, like an intrusion 
into the narrative. But what's happening here is quite dramatic and significant, especially on the heels of the events of chapter 32. I heard someone illustrate it like this. They compared what's happening here to the end of Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi, which is by far the worst Star Wars and just, just an abomination, you guys, all right? But there's a good illustration in this, all right? There's a scene where the Resistance, which are the good guys, are staring down the evil First Order, and all seems lost, okay? And their demise seems inevitable. But Luke Skywalker shows up, and he walks among the Resistance and out of the cave where the people are hiding, and as he walks by them, they stand up. And they watch as he goes and stares down the entire First Order as the resistance last hope for salvation and rescue. And so here we're told Moses is among the people and he rises up and he walks through the camp. The people stand up and they watch him as he heads to the tent of the meeting. They just watch him the whole time. And the whole time he's at the tent of the meeting, they're watching him. As he heads there, the people's hopes rest on him. Like their future, their whole future rests on their mediator's shoulders as he walks out to meet with the Lord, and they're worshiping and hoping that Moses could stand in the gap somehow and somehow convince the Lord to stay with them. And so clearly, yes, Moses enjoys a special relationship with God because he's the only one who could go to the tent of the meeting. And verse 11 says, he spoke to the Lord as a man speaks to his friend. This is to say that Moses saw God's face because verse 20 says he cannot. Rather, what he, what's been shown here is that Moses relates to God in a way that nobody else can. And there's something, I think, beautifully poetic in this picture that I think speaks profoundly about us. Do you see it? Like, we too were far off from God, yes? We too could not approach God. We, we were... He was just too far away, not by his choice, but by ours. Just like Israel is far away from God because of their choice and their sin. Our sin, our golden calves, put us at enmity with our creator. We couldn't have a close relationship with him because we're too unclean. And no matter what we did, we could not rise up and stroll into his presence. But instead, a truer and better Moses was given to us. that He could walk right up to God's presence. Like, no need for veils, no need for shrouds. He can look straight into the face of the Father. And he enjoys a relationship more intimate than anything we can imagine, more intimate than Moses even enjoys. But he goes to the Father, and we look to this mediator, and all of our hopes rest on him. And on him was placed our iniquity. And he voluntarily went outside the camp and was crucified offered as a sacrifice to advocate for us and atone for us and to mend the broken relationship. Moses couldn't do all that, could he? But he does foreshadow that for us, doesn't he? Because all of Scripture is pointing to who? And since Moses can't atone for the people's sin, this next scene is really cool. He goes to God, he begins to talk to him, okay? And there's some things that Moses is fuzzy about and he wants to clear up. Moses genuinely does not know what God is up to, okay? And he wants some clarification. Now, what happens is Moses makes an appeal in 12 and 13, and God agrees to the appeal in 14. Then Moses makes another appeal in 15 and 16, and guess what? God agrees to that too in 17. And so when Moses says in 13, show me now your ways, 
He's asking God, what do you have in mind here? Moses confused and he's worried how all this will turn out now that Israel's sinned and broken the covenant with God. And God has said that he won't go with him. So Moses says, I need your guidance. I, I, I don't want to lead the people without you with me. That's the first appeal that Moses makes. And so God says in verse 14, okay, I'll be with you. <laughs> it's just like, I'll be with you. And I will give you rest. Yeah, but here's the thing. That's all singular, okay? He's saying, God is saying that he will be with Moses. And he will give Moses rest, but not the rest of the people. He'll guide Moses like he said he would but not all of Israel. They'll have to rely on the angel and Moses' mediation to an even further degree. So this is why Moses responds to this and says, if you won't be in the people's midst, it's better that we just stay here. So he tells them, and not go to the promised land at all. So Moses gets it, doesn't he? But Moses gets it. He gets the whole point of all of this. And he says, if God won't be in our midst, the promised land, pointless. This whole thing was so that we can have you among us. And if you're not going to be among us, we don't want to go. We'll just stay here forever. Like, a, Imagine if, if my wife, Silent and I decided in nine years for our 25th anniversary, we'd take a trip somewhere, okay? And we booked the flights and we booked the hotels. We found a place to store our thousands of kids for the week. And we did all this work for years to plan this thing out. And then soon before the trip, Silent says, I can't go. Like for some reason, I, I can't go. And so she says, which she would never say this, by the way, we booked it, everything is secure, just go without me, okay? I wouldn't go. I wouldn't want to. Like, why would I? Like, the whole point was for us to go together. Without her, the trip would be what? Utterly pointless. Moses is saying, God, if you aren't in the midst of Israel, we don't want to go. We'd rather stay here and be with you then go to the land of milk and honey without you. And notice again what he appeals to in verse 16. He doesn't appeal to anything in Israel. <laughs> the appeal is once more grounded in who God is and his glory and his fame. He says, if we go and we get to the promised land and you aren't with us, what distinguishes us from the rest of the nations? Like, you're the one who makes us set apart and we have to bear your name in order for you to be known in the world. In other words, for Moses, what matters most about Israel is to whom they belong. What's most important is not their locale. It's not their nationality. It isn't what they possess. It's who possesses them. And friend, that's the most important thing about you too. Did you know that? It isn't what you drive or what you wear, or where you live, or who you know, or who knows you, or what your name is, what people think of you, how dope your house is, or plus your vacations are, how impressive your resume is. The most important thing about you is who do you belong to. Do you believe that? Because if you do, that will change everything about how you live. Everything. What's the most important thing about FBC? Ain't our history. It's not our past or our building or our location or our name or our reputation, the genre of songs we sing, the amount of type of programs or classes we have, but our identification with Christ and our unity in him and his truth. 
and a concern to make him the center of all we do and spread his fame throughout a community in darkness. It isn't, it isn't who we are, it's about who he is. Ours is to attach to him, not to find things for ourselves. And it is our relationship with him that ought to make us unique and different than to those in present darkness. Moses says, we want and need you, and that's it, what, wherever that happens to be. And something amazing happens. You know what God says? <laughs> okay. Well, you've said, I will do. You, you found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. God says, you want me in your midst? You got it. Like, he, he utterly reverses what he said in verses 3. So, this bleak affair has been turned around thanks to Israel's mediator. And now, quickly, there, there's one more scene, and this is one of the most famous scenes in all of Exodus, right? Moses responds to this by saying, please show me your glory. What's Moses asking here? Because I'm afraid that we get this mixed up. He's not asking to see God's face, okay? He just wants to see God's glory. Like, in other words, Moses is asking for a reassuring sign, okay, from God like he was given in 16.10 and 24.16 and 17. Moses' request is based on a desire to know the Lord as the Lord desires to be known. Moses wanted to know God even more and he wanted a sign of assurance that everything God has promised will come to fruition. So again, God acquiesces, right? <laughs> I'll do better. That's what God says. I'll do better and more than you ask, but not as far as showing you my face. No one can see that and live. So when God says, you can't see my face and live, we need to understand this is not something Moses asked for. He didn't ask for that. You can look at the text and see that this is not what he asked for. Rather, what God is saying is that he will do more than give Moses assurance of his continued presence within Israel, but he adds that he can't go so far as to show Moses his face. I'm going to do more than you ever thought, but I can't go this far. God says he'll show Moses, do you see what it says? All of his goodness, or a better way to say this is nothing but his goodness. Since Moses could not, as a human, perceive all of God's goodness. Think of like a light being turned on in a formerly dark room. Now every surface the light touches has nothing but light. God's goodness, as revealed to Moses, would be total in the sense of nothing but goodness. Douglas Stewart helpfully explains in his commentary, what God would be promising Moses would be a chance to sense God's glory visually, to see something so splendid to behold, the best thing he could possibly see as a human, that he would know without a doubt that it represented God's presence passing before him. When God says that he will proclaim before you my name, he's saying that Moses will behold something of God's character and glory. And, God, and says God, I will be gracious. You probably know this verse too. I will be gracious with whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Now the focus of this phrase is not on God's process of choosing who receives mercy, okay? But on the fact that God will be merciful to Israel just as Moses asked. Since God chose Israel, he will be compassionate on them. They can't escape it. So God hides Moses in the cleft of this rock to protect him, and he passes by, and we're told that God, Moses sees God's back. What's that mean? We'll get more into this later, next week. 
But I want you to listen to Dwayne Garrity. He explains it. Back does not represent anything except that it is less than the full expression of Yahweh's being and presence. God showing his back rather than his face to Moses is analogous to shining a powerful flashlight away from someone instead of directly into his eyes. Thus, when Moses saw God's back but not his face, he had limited but real encounter with the person of God. Moses, this is what we need to get from all this, was concerned ultimately with the glory of God and the presence of God with him and Israel, so he requested, this is the heart of his request, to know more of God. That's his supreme desire. That's what Moses wants more than anything in the world. So can I ask, friend, is that your supreme desire too? In the deepest places of your heart, is knowing the Lord and making him known the most important thing to you. Is Christ, like we talked about earlier, your all in all? Friend, what is it that you want more than anything? Like, if the deepest desire of your heart could be fulfilled this instant, what would happen? Would it be more things? More money? A child's future success secured? Is it centered around a relationship or your looks? A bigger house, a nicer car? A feeling of financial or relational peace? Is it safety and security or health? Or is it to know Jesus more and to behold his glory and to spread it to and fro throughout the land. I mean, truly, what is it? Like, you're answering this question right now in your heart. There's no need for pretense, is there? Because here's the thing about all that stuff. It's important. It could be good. But none of it will save you. None of it will fulfill you. None of it will give you meaning and purpose and value. Only Christ will. And none of those things went outside the camp to die in your place. Only Christ did that. And here's the beauty. You ready? Are you ready for this? Just like Moses here, if you ask for more knowledge of Christ and his goodness, guess what will happen? You'll get more Christ and his goodness. If you ask for God to use you to make him known to others, guess what will happen? He'll put the opportunities right in front of you. And while the scene you will have of Jesus in this life is more knowledge of him, which will create more love for him and less love of things of earth, you will one day see him face to face. Can you believe that? Like one day... You and your resurrected and glorified body and he and his will stand in the very presence of Christ and you will look him in the face in a way that Moses only dreamed of. But until then, let's continue to pursue Christ and be overwhelmed and in awe of Christ. And the more we do that, the more we displace idols and throw off our ornaments and live a life of glad repentance and behold his beauty and glory and live for the same. Allow me to close one of my favorite quotes ever 
from 19th century Scottish pastor Robert Murray Machane, who gets to the heart of what we talked about today. Listen to what he says. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He's altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace. And all for sinners, even the chief, live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart. And so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh.